Good morning. I think it's been five years since I have been here, and uh, you guys haven't changed a bit. Thank you for the opportunity, Pastor, for letting me be here, and I appreciate uh, the relationship that I've had, that my family and I have had with this congregation for a long time. Um, I wanted to sort of introduce myself to those of you that I uh, have not known. Um, In 1955, I was born down in Charleston, South Carolina, and for the first 20 years of my life, I was raised in a very strict Roman Catholic upbringing. I I remember our having to go to church every single Sunday, and uh, from the time I was eight years old, I became an acolyte till I was 16, the same with my older brother and younger brother. For those of you who don't know an acolyte, it's the guy in black and white who goes around and helps the pastor during the Mass. Uh, We went to Sunday school, and um, beginning in 1973, when I was graduating from high school, uh, I began to hear the gospel. My mother was converted, and uh, she is the kind of witness who would put tracts on top of the towels in the bathroom, so you had to at least move the track. And uh, uh, But I love darkness rather than light, and because of that, I was not open to the gospel until I understood in 1975 that what would it matter if I gained the whole world but lost my soul forever? And uh, understanding that, I did get saved in 1975. I knew immediately I was called to uh, preach the gospel. I didn't really understand why, except it had taken me a long time to uh, know what the truth was. I remember even as a youngster asking God, I didn't know who he really was, but for him to show me the truth. And uh, so I went straight to Uh, The pastor of the church where I'd gotten saved asked him, where you go to be a priest? I don't want to be a Catholic one, but I do think God wants me to be a priest. And uh, so he directed me to Bible school. Uh, From 1975 to 79, I transferred from the College of Charleston to Bob Jones University. And in 1979, Debbie and I met. We were married. We dated for two weeks. I told her I loved her and I thought we ought to be married, but let's wait a little while. It seemed that people would talk that we were too fast. So we waited another two weeks and then a lot longer after that. So um, uh, we were married in a double wedding with uh, Alan and Jan, uh, my sister and her fiancé. In 1981, I graduated. We had four children and took about a year and a half to learn where God wanted us to serve. Uh, My idea of a mission field was jungle and definite death of family members and 
uh, just, you know, that kind of what we think of as a jungle outreach. And so field after field, I just didn't even consider, and it never occurred to me that there was an individual consistently calling me and asking me to consider coming up to Canada. <clears throat> well, there's no jungle in Canada, and uh, they have a good health system there, so there's no way I'm going to lose family members there. So uh, I just never even considered that as a serious place that God might want me um, But uh, what I found out was that the Lord convinced my wife that we were to go to Canada, and she was waiting for the Lord to convince me. I found out she knew about a year after she knew, and um, really praise the Lord for the kind of wife who wanted her husband to know from God, not her. So that was a blessing. We raised support from 1986 to 1988. I was ordained after 11 years uh, attending our home church there. And uh, in 1988, we left for Calgary. And from that date, for the next 20 years, I planted and pastored Foundation Baptist Church of Calgary. I thought there were five things necessary for us to plant. Two of them were personal. I wanted to become a citizen of Canada, and uh, we did that. And the other thing was I wanted for us to own our own home. In fact, it was your former pastor who uh, asked my permission and then GFA's permission, can he mail letters to all of our supporters and ask to help raise a down payment for us And that worked, and so we bought our own home there. The practical things that I thought were necessary were three, so two personal, three practical things. One, I thought we needed a congregation of about a 100 people, and uh, we got to where we had that after about 12, 13 years, and um, then I thought we needed full-time support from the church. It was more of a mission work that was like church planting in the United States. Uh, pastors go, they work hard, they establish the church, then they stay there permanently. That's what I was going to do. In my mind, that's what I believe the Lord wanted me to do. And so the church began to increase our support year by year. And as he did that, as they did that, rather... Uh, I decreased uh, our American support and uh, because I was going to stay there permanently. And uh, the other thing, actually the church still has not been able to acquire, and that is I thought we needed our own building. Once we had a permanent place for us to meet, I thought then you could say the church had been planted. So... Uh, All but the last one, and in fact, they still haven't. Uh, Brother Michael Miller came and took my place back in 2008 and became the pastor of the church. And um, I need to back up now and sort of fill in some uh, other facts. In 1991, Emma was born in Calgary, our last child. 
My son is now 41 and Emma is 31, so they range 10 years apart, and we have five, one boy and four girls. In 1992, we started an organization called the Western Canada Baptist Fellowship, and I believe uh, we had a team come up from uh, University Baptist to help with uh, the WCBF and our meetings, especially our summer camp. Um, we had uh, ladies' retreats, we had our annual conference, we had uh, men's retreats in the fall, and we added a, a teen, and then a few years later, a teen and a junior camp. And for many years, the folks at uh, Grandview Camp really ran that ministry for us, for which all the pastors who did it for three years before that were very grateful and uh, two years ago, after COVID, we decided that we would do the camp part of the WCBF ourselves. But it is very good fellowship, very much encouraging each other in the ministry uh, up there. In uh, 2006, from, from 2006 to about 2008, a pastor from up in Edmonton would regularly... Um, knock on my door or ring my telephone. Pastor Jim Tillotson was the pastor of Meadowlands Baptist Church. He's now the president of Faith Baptist Bible College and Seminary in Ankeny, Iowa. But back then, he just really urged me, would you come up and start a college? I said, uh, I knew nothing about church planting, and now you're asking me to do something I know even less about. Minus nothing. Uh, I, I just, you know, kept saying, this was kind of my, you know, modus operandi with um, listening to the Lord. He would say, I want you to do this. And I would say, no, I can't do that. And I would say that until it, it became obvious that that was what I was to do. I remember what he said to Moses. Uh, no, you will go. And he said that to me then, he said that to me when we were in Calgary. And so in 2009, I came up and established the Foundation Baptist Institute to begin with and college, but we dropped the institute after uh, three years, and it's just Foundation Baptist College. And I'm back to teaching because of Debbie's death in January, uh, I didn't teach this last semester, but I am back to teaching in the fall with um, Dr. Joel Arnold, who is now the president of the Foundation Baptist College. In 2012, I went to Lighthouse Baptist Church and became president of preaching and teaching. Lighthouse is on the north side of Edmonton. Meadowlands is down on the south side, and that's the church under whose auspices we started the college. So I have both responsibilities, and uh, until Pastor David Pruden resigned, uh, I was the pastor of preaching and teaching, and until we have a new senior pastor, I am now the interim pastor. And as I mentioned, in 2022, in fact, the same month that Debbie was diagnosed with cancer, uh, Joel and Sarah sat in our living room and said, 
what would you think if we just stayed at the college? I thought he meant just for the fall semester to teach. But uh, he said, no, permanently. And it was an answer to three years of praying uh, because um, we were anxious to have one of the ministries sort of taken off our shoulders. And I was very happy preaching in Lighthouse, wanted to pursue that. But Brother Arnold has done really a remarkable job just since September when he became the uh, president of the college. We now have accreditation that is credited to us. Uh, We now have an increased uh, student body uh, over uh, or near 30 for this coming fall and praying that the Lord would give us 30 just credit students for the fall. And if you can remember that, to pray for that, we would be grateful. And then, um, as I mentioned, in April, Debbie was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. The wonderful thing is both of my children who were, uh, well, one was in the United States. My son David and his family has been in um, Shanghai, Canada, administrating a Western-style nursing program at the University of Shanghai for the last 15 years. And the Lord really worked providentially to allow them to leave the country, come back, and they were very, very helpful taking care of Debbie. It's also nice to have an RN in the family when that's needed, and it was needed, and Emma came back and nursed her mother through this. And uh, so... As our brother said, we've been adjusting to that. Uh, I always think of Job's children and how Job prayed for them. And I pray for my children that the Lord would continue to work in their lives, that they wouldn't get bitter against God. There's no indication that they are, but, you know, it's a difficult thing, especially for the girls. They were very close to Debbie. Uh, so I was very thankful to see and, and uh, see their adjustment, their glorifying the Lord and the way they were responding. And then we had another great blessing in January when Andrew Minnick and his family came to teach in the spring semester uh, just to see if the Lord wanted them to minister there. Uh, So that kind of catches you up with where we are, except for one thing. Um, For years, I've had a a seeing difficulty from the time I was six years old. It's called disc drusen. That's not important, the name of it. But uh, uh, calcium builds up on both my optic nerves, but it's worse in my left eye. And uh, my ophthalmologist told me on April the 9th, that I cannot drive anymore. And, uh, of course, that makes ministry difficult. Uh, in fact, I was going to drive from Atlanta, where my flight ended, I thought, and drive to Greenville. I couldn't do that. Um, when I got here, several people said, you know, I know a very good ophthalmologist. He's an ophthalmic surgeon, and, and you can go to him. So I did. 
And he confirmed what my ophthalmologist in Edmonton had said. He said, in fact, he said, you have the worst case of disc drusen I have ever seen. And uh, so I thanked him for being honest. And uh, so, so that's an adjustment I really don't have any idea how I'm going to make. Uh, not that I don't think the Lord will direct me in it. I do. But I just don't know how. And the church that I had planned to work in is all the way on the other side of Edmonton. It's uh, 30 to 40 minutes drive away. So uh, there are some adjustments I'm going to have to make. And I would appreciate your prayers for that. Are there? We're just going to take a few minutes for questions before I... Uh, preach for a few minutes this morning, but the few minutes for questions are going to be shorter than the time I'm going to preach. So if you have any questions, I'd be happy to try and answer them. And I can see you. Oh, we can't see to drive. So, so we can't see us. You know, we uh, and affects your peripheral vision, and we think of peripheral way out here. But I have a complete blind spot down here. And can't see there. And then I have little blind spots in my forward vision. But if I just keep turning my head, I can see all of you. And if you wave your hand vigorously, I will notice that. Any questions at all about, uh, don't ask me what I'm going to do now. Because I'll say, pray about that, please. Western Canada is uh, very different from Eastern Canada. Eastern Canada is much more, uh, not just politically liberal, but morally liberal. Um, And Alberta is called the one U.S. state in Canada because it is much more like the United States than any of the other provinces are. And I think that's because of the oil industry. In the 1940s, oil was discovered and there was a rush of uh, workers from Texas (laughs) when that happened. And uh, so that's affected our economy quite a bit, good in terms of money. And also, in some ways, you know, it, it caused us to focus more on the things of the Lord. I'll just give you one example of that. We had a premier named Ernest Manning in the 50s all the way into the 80s. Um, a premier similar to a state governor here. And uh, Manning was an aggressive uh, evangelist. And uh, when I went up in 88 and we settled uh, 1989, I was listening to the radio and I heard a wonderful gospel message. And it was Ernest Manning. He was still alive. And uh, preaching the gospel on the radio. And at Meadowlands, there's a large uh, uh, senior citizen constituency there. And it's very common when you talk to them. Tell me how you got saved. I got saved listening to Ernest Manning on the radio. And it was somewhere in the 50s. Might have been the early 60s. I don't remember exactly the date that uh, Bob Jones gave Ernest Manning an honorary doctorate for his stand. So there is a certain amount of openness, but bear in mind that 
Canada is strongly oriented towards socialism. Uh, some would just call it outright a socialist government, but uh, I, I think from a technical standpoint that's not true, but it does have a lot of that thinking. And just one example of that, when we were looking to buy land and and uh, build a building or buy an old building, uh, uh, several of the folks in our church raised their hand and they said, can, uh, can we get money from the government for this? So I said, I don't think we can, but I'll check. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the thinking. You know, the government is supposed to take care of me. They, they need to, they say, from the cradle to the grave, the government takes care of all the people there. So there is that orientation there that I'm not used to growing up here anyway. So, so there are positive things. There's an openness. We've seen uh, probably in the last two years 10, 12 people saved. We have a ministry, <clears throat> uh, Freedom That Lasts. We live in a, in a very difficult area of the city. And uh, so we have people who are alcoholic or drug addicts street people, and they come to that Friday night Freedom That Last service, and a number of those folks get saved. So there's a lot of, you know, brand new Christians. I mean brand new, not infants or young people, but they're in their 30s and 40s, and some older and younger who get saved, and they have zero understanding of the Christian life. So, and there's a real refreshment about that when you get to train them from that state. Okay, anything else? Does that answer your question? Okay. All right. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs. Um, I began preparing a series for our church folks, and um, I read a, a very, very helpful book. It is in the series called the Biblical, the, let's see, the New Studies in Biblical Theology. And you say, wow, I would never pick up a book like that, but it is probably one of the most readable books in that whole series. It's very, very good. And uh, that directed me to this text. But I want to begin by telling you a story about James Hudson Taylor, the well-known missionary to China in the last, actually, two centuries ago. Uh, And the biographer for him says that he had been called out late one night to witness to and pray over a sick woman who had two starving children. As he tried to pray, his words choked in his mouth because he had in his possession a silver coin that would uh, answer his prayer and alleviate their suffering somewhat. And... Uh, His heart told him, why, you hypocrite. Um, His heart condemned him, calling him a hypocrite, telling these people about a kind and loving father in heaven 
and yet not prepared to trust that father with your last money. It was his very last money. He didn't know where it was coming from next. So in resignation to the voice of his heart, he gave them his last coin and uh, went home to one bowl of porridge between him and utter poverty. As he ate that last meal of porridge, he remembered the scripture in Proverbs seventeen nineteen, which said, He that hath pity on the poor lendeth to the Lord. He thought of that scripture and he trusted it. He left his entire financial welfare resting on that statement in Proverbs. Taylor believed it because it was a word from God. And... So he just left his fortunes in the hand of God and believed that God would help him somehow. The passage in Proverbs that I want to read is in Proverbs 30, the words of Agur, uh, the son of Jakey, uh, or Jekeh. Uh, I only had one semester of Hebrew, so I don't really know. I don't know. I don't know that even Hebrew folks know how this was pronounced originally. But anyway, um, he writes the Proverbs that are in this chapter. And uh, when you read through the chapter, it's obvious that he is a follower of the Lord. And uh, that becoming plain, you realize that the things he's asking for are very good things to someone who's interested in living a holy life. Um, You'll notice as you read that much of what Agur says is in the form of what are called numerical sayings. Um, Statements like, the leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. So there are numbers. These things are... Very important to remember. And so our text is a numerical saying. If you'd skip down to verse 7, two things, Agur says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. The primary lesson here is that Agur has very strong desires for his life. And that strength of desire is to please the Lord in what he does. Now, I believe that the first part of verse 8 is part of the introduction. I don't think that's one of the desires. And uh, I didn't come to this on my own. I came to this by reading commentaries. And... uh, That is uh, mentioned by several folks, including the book that I read that helped me so much. Uh, By the way, I was especially interested in this because the title of the book, if you're interested, is Neither Poverty Nor Riches, Um, New Studies in Biblical Theology. Very, very good uh, read for the average person. So I think the two requests, by the way, just so that you understand the attachment, um, what he's going to talk about in the second half of verse 8, and remember that the verses aren't inspired. They were put there later. 
Um, he's going to talk about being concerned about being poor or rich because he's deceived by both states. And he asks the Lord not to allow him to be deceived. And that's one of the reasons I think it's part of the introduction there. Uh, I don't want to be lied to by wealth. I don't want to be lied to by poverty. And he's going to explain that down in verse 9. So the requests are in verses 1 and 2. Uh, our text for the message this morning. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Don't allow to come across my path circumstances that are going to leave me destitute. And at the same time, please don't allow to come across my path circumstances that are going to leave me wealthy. I don't know about you, but I would read this and I would say, you know, I'm not nearly as afraid of the second as I am of the first. But I think because we live in a country where not being afraid of the second is so common and so many people are deceived by it. So those are the two requests. Instead, he asks, feed me with the food that is needful for me. And then he gives the reasons in verse 9. There are just two points to consider. One is the prayer of the passage, or the prayers plural of the passage, and the reasons for those prayers. Notice that Agur is praying for himself in verse 8. He uses the word me several times. He's concerned throughout this chapter. He's very concerned about his holiness of life. And one of the things he understands better than, I suppose, many of the others, depending on where he was when this happened, is that there is no good thing in him. Nothing. He has no ability naturally to repel poverty and he certainly doesn't have any ability to repel wealth and not be lied to it or lied to by it. So he prays for himself. Secondly, Agur is assuming something about God when he prays and that is that God can Produce the circumstances that leave him in one of these two states. He can make him poor. You know, we retire. And we are saving toward that. And we have plans. And uh, one of the first funerals I did for the funeral home in Calgary, where the people didn't know a pastor, didn't know a minister, and... Uh, the funeral home said, well, maybe you'd like to have this guy do your funeral. And he handed him my card. Um, was a guy who had spent uh, 73 years working, had saved uh, very generously for his retirement. So over the next two years, he built with his own hands a 2,200 square foot vacation home, which he and his wife 
uh, were going to live in. And a week before he moved in, he died. Then shall those things be. Uh, Then whose shall those things be which he had collected for himself? And uh, I remember thinking, wow, I just, you know, spent his whole life working and saving and working toward being able to not have to work. And then all of a sudden losing all of that, or at least losing the enjoyment of it. Um, And it was very sad to think about. But God can do this. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Uh, And I've said this to more than one person. You know, you need to pray for God's help in your life. No, I work hard. I make my money. And nobody's going to take it away from me, especially giving in an offering at a church. (laughs) One fellow said, and uh, I don't have to be the one to take it away from him. Because God is sovereign over the circumstances of life. As we think about this prayer, we might naturally expect that we would ask God not to make us poor. But do we naturally want God not to make us rich? And if we don't naturally want that, why don't we naturally want that. We have lists of the richest people in the world. Why don't we have lists of the poorest people in the world? Because nobody wants that, but most everybody wants the other and thinks it not only could be a good thing, but it certainly would not change us if we were. So oftentimes there's very little difference in the desire for wealth between Save people and lost people. But Agur prays, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. But what does he ask for himself instead? The rest of the verse says, feed me with the food that is needful for me. And the Lord told us to pray every day for what? Our daily bread. But most of us here, as the writer of that theology book, Notice time after time, we don't just have daily bread. Uh, I mean, we have cabinets full of bread. We have freezers full of bread. We have, we have uh, probably yearly bread uh, in our homes. Or, in other words, we are quite well off, typically. And uh, so there is a broad range And by God's blessing, there is a broad range of people who have their needful um, daily living provided. Um, It is a broad range. Uh, He argues in that book I told you about that um, uh, it's not really a middle class. People go to a verse like this and say, well, he's... He wants to be part of the middle class because the middle class in most African countries is very different from the middle class in the United States, which is very different from the middle class in China and uh, probably very different from the middle class everywhere else around the world. 
But let's examine verse 9 and the reasons for the prayer. He says, I'm asking for this, Lord, because I don't want to be in the first place, if I'm rich, I don't want to be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And the person who very quickly says, I would never do that, is a lot like what biblical character? Who said, Lord, even if they all deny you, yet I will never deny you. And the Lord warned him three times, before dawn tomorrow, you will deny me three times. And the Lord could have said, the third time, you'll do it by cursing and swearing. And so we think, I would never change just because I was wealthy. There would be a way never to change, and that is to take all but about a 100 bucks and give it away. Then you'd have no reason to change, and you would be a very generous person. But the reason Agar asked God to not to make him rich is because he realized his vulnerableness or his vulnerability to the temptation of the rich. Wealth lies to us. I need a car. I don't have to really pray about this because after all, I could buy seven of them right now, all in cash if I wanted to. I need to go see a doctor. I don't really need to pray about this. I can buy the best doctor there is. Whatever I need, I can afford. And it never occurs to us, as it did to Mr. Letourneau, to put a plaque on the wall saying, God, tell me how much of your money I can spend on myself. Because we think it's all ours. After all, we worked hard for it, right? So so my possessions belong to God. I don't decide for myself what I do with this body. I do it up to a point. For years, I exercised with a man in our church, very aggressively guarding his health, who died in his 60s of cancer. And I mean, what certainly wasn't anything he did to his body. But we do plan, and yet the outcomes all depend on God. And so my possessions belong to God, my vehicle, my house, my retirement account, my savings, any wealth that I have, all belongs to him. What does God want me to do with it? And how much of his money does he want me to spend on myself? So there is a deceptiveness of wealth. And the same thing is true of His prayer that God not leave him in poverty or destitute because he realized his vulnerability to the temptations of being poor. And the other side of that is that uh, he's going to uh, steal And break God's commandment because he doesn't believe God is going to provide for him. His state keeps him from turning to God. 
I suppose more often than not. Uh, The wealth convinces me that God is not necessary, and the poverty convinces me that God either is of no help or that his laws are impossible to keep. And the great lesson here is this. Agur is more concerned about his relationship to God than he is about his day-to-day needs. If I am right with God, he will take care of my day-to-day needs. But my most important job in life is walking with him, knowing him better day by day, seeking his face. Now, God will allow folks to be wealthy, and he will direct them in the use of that wealth. But we have to listen. We have to obey. Sometimes he tells us to do something that seems extreme to us. And we need to come back and say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Nevertheless, it's not my money, but God, it's yours. Where do you want it to go? The very next day, Hudson Taylor received a package. In it was a gold coin worth ten times the silver coin he had given the night before. He cried out triumphantly, that is good interest. Um, And he said, that's the bank for me. Investing in God's bank for 12 hours and it brings me this. So questions I will close with. We must be conscientious to reject our culture's lust for money. That attitude undermines our love for God. Secondly, we can trust God for our material needs just like Taylor did. This doesn't mean we do nothing and God will shower the needed funds upon us day by day. But when God provides a situation where we cannot provide for ourselves, or if we're tempted to disobey God to provide for some need, God will undertake for us. So what place does money have in our thinking? I was supposed to begin with this, and I forgot. Uh, We were contacted by an elder here at the church. He said, we'd like to help you guys out. Can you tell us anything that you might need? And this was after David and his family had come home. They moved into our home with us. They're still living in the downstairs. It's kind of an apartment, but it's more like just a basement. And uh, so uh, he was on the phone, and I thought, wow, we really don't need anything And it was just a few minutes after that, my wife called me into the kitchen, and you heard this real funny putt-putt noise. And I said, you know, a refrigerator is not supposed to make that noise. And uh, sure enough, it putt-putted out. And uh, so I contacted uh, this elder the next day, and I said, you know, it's really ironic that you called and asked that. Because now it's not just Debbie and I. It was a really small refrigerator. It was just the two of us, so we didn't need a big one. But now all of a sudden we have five more people in the house. 
and two of them are teenagers. So, uh, so I said, we could really use a refrigerator. And you folks were very kind to provide generously for that. The refrigerator is cavernous. And uh, that is, it is very, very nice. Thank you very much for your generosity. And uh, I, I wasn't preaching this message because I thought you weren't generous. I know you are generous. Um, but, you know, for myself, this verse really did work in my heart, and I hope it works in yours. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your kindness in giving to us um, day by day what we have need of. And Lord, you can be trusted with all of our needs, and we pray that we would not be tardy in coming to you and seeking your face for our needs. Thank you for what you will do, Lord. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you as Savior, And thinks that perhaps praying to a God that we cannot see for material possessions that we can see seems foolish. But Lord, I pray that you'd undertake for that person in an extraordinary way to help them see that you are the God of everything. The visible and the invisible. And that you are the one who can make us wealthy or poor, you are the God who can just give us what we have need of. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.